0: Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. The show is sponsored by idealworkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at aspirus.co, Aspirus.co, and Linkshare.com, where you can sell your products everywhere.
1: Hi Karen. Hi, Bernard.
0: How are you doing?
1: Good, good. Thanks for having me today.
0: Yes, I'm talking to Karen Mock, Asia Regional Manager for Seedstars World, and we will talk about Seedstars World immediately. But before that, Karen, I know you started in the area of user experience design, and also have some knowledge of business strategies. So how do you get started?
1: So I became an entrepreneur at age 16 through a nonprofit program in the US called the National Foundation for Teaching Entrepreneurship. And the mission is to empower youth in low-income areas to become entrepreneurs, one, to have an alternative life that they may use end up in, and then second is to generate local economic development. And so through the program, I became the young entrepreneur of the year from my home state, South Carolina, and I started my first business. When I was 16 and it was a personalized greeting card platform so it was like e-commerce for greeting cards kind of like an Etsy before Etsy existed and the whole product development was very much design oriented like I was making the, the content and then the design for the cards and then also doing all the sales so I started very young, and then from there, it's just understanding design and business coming together. Continue to do that in work now.
0: So from your experience, mainly in the area of social enterprise, because I know you also did something called TechSoup Global, you also did something called Mahela, and also then you moved to these startups where you work in the, your current state. So what are the interesting career lessons you have learned?
1: So I was drawn to tech social enterprise, tech for goods, what they call it in the States, because uh, the platform that helped me become an entrepreneur really introduced entrepreneurship to me had this very explicit social mission. And so that's where I developed the philosophy that technology and entrepreneurship can have a very meaningful role in improving society. The vision of that is actually what led me to see StarSquirrel as well, and uh, that's our mission. Uh, we really think entrepreneurship for the emerging markets can help to improve the economies and countries and way of life. As for career lessons, I think from the social enterprise space, they're actually quite relatable. To startups in general and I know there's some siloism that can happen but I try to make it more general so the first is it's a systems game so in any industry you know you have your high-level stakeholders your influencers who are making the decisions but in the social enterprise space I believe it's particularly pronounced because you're dealing with systemic issues health education sanitation you know there's a really good piece in Stanford social innovation review that talks about these types of problems they call them wicked problems but as a social entrepreneur you have to very quickly have a hunger to understand the the system that brought about the problem in the first place Mm. right in the same way in any startup when you get to a certain scale you also have to consider you know the larger system within which you're working whether it's the industry or you know the system of your your customers so having a very sharp peripheral vision is what i call it is a good career lesson the second is crossing the borders so As I mentioned the siloism at the beginning, so in the traditional nonprofit social sector space, they're not engineers, they're not product people. But the startups that are trying to tackle the issues, you all come from that world. So there's a lot of education that has to go both ways. Whenever there's a gap like that, and I think there's still many gaps in, in these emerging ecosystems where we're working, you really have to be someone who understands both sides, and the best way is just to work in both areas. So I actually worked in, at Dalberg Global Development Advisors, which is a management consultancy for international development, and social sector, because that gave me exposure to the high level stakeholders, funders, donors in the space. And then as a social entrepreneur, not having that access unnecessarily. So it's really now that I have both, I can really bridge the gap for the two worlds.
0: I think it's very interesting because social entrepreneurs come from the viewpoint that the company starts with a social mission and part of the ethos is that actually whatever profits you make, you actually channel back into building that social enterprise. From your experience so far, how do you balance between the profit and the social mission itself? Because I think the word non-profit is really not relevant in this conversation. Mm -hmm.
1: This is a very good question, and honestly, it's still very challenging because the priority for, you know, a social entrepreneur, I think, and you talk about motivation, is the social impact. And the way that they speak to investors is still difficult because there's only a limited pool of what we call impact investors, right, who understand the profit and the purpose. So when you think about return, and the moment you take investment, you, you have stakeholders, you know, really demanding that you have to understand one is a longer time horizon and two different metrics it's very hard to quantify something like increase in in literacy in in six months time you need one year two years three years and there's very rigorous academic studies that are done on exactly how do you accurately measure you know increase in literacy just as an example so one thing that i encourage and i learn to do is use lagging indicators and lagging indicators and leading indicators so leading indicators can kind of hint that you are headed towards an increase in literacy say that's you know your your end goal by measuring things that you can look at at the three-month and the six-month mark the challenge is of course that kind of study is often you know in in the world of academia and for a social entrepreneur who's in a rural area who has maybe the motivation and passion to go for that kind of problem they don't necessarily connect it with the people who are, who are really determining what metrics should be standard in the field right mm. so again i think there is a gap but increasingly as as more social entrepreneurs are coming up and articulating new ways of measuring their impact it's going to help level the playing field but until there's a standard it's going to be a challenge
0: so you currently work as a regional manager for Seed Stars World, what does the organization do? What is its mission and purpose? And I know you have just traveled across, I think, including Singapore is 15 countries, right, in Asia.
1: So Seed Stars World is a Swiss initiative to find, connect, and invest in the top startups in emerging markets. It started three years ago to bridge the gap between investors in Europe and the US and the talent opportunity in emerging markets. Now, I've already spoken a lot about bridging gaps. And I think that's a big reason why I personally joined CSTARS, so that's where a lot of my previous work has been. It's, we've grown very aggressively, scaling from 20 to 58 countries in three years time. And because the real value is in building this truly global community, the top tech entrepreneurs Seastars World is a platform underneath Seastars Group and Seastars Group is a company builder and we have a headquarters in Geneva, Switzerland and in Lagos, Nigeria. In terms of the mission, I think it's really to impact people's lives through technology and entrepreneurship. We believe that you know talent and uh, is more evenly distributed among people, but opportunity is not. We're really trying to bridge that. We started out trying to do a funding gap because that was the expertise of our founders but over the three years we realized actually the, there's a very large gap in, in education so that's where we focused our efforts on this year.
0: By the way Seed Stars will have a competition right? Yes. So how does the Seed Stars World competition work?
1: So there's three pillars of the competition. The first is local partnerships. So the only way we can successfully cover so much ground is by having local partners and ambassadors in the markets where we work. So the local partner tends to be a key player influencer in the startup ecosystem. In Manila, for example, we work with Impact Hub, co-working space. In Jakarta, we work with Kibar, which is a startup community organization. They help us to better understand exactly how we need to customize the Seedstars star's experience for the market, depending on you know what stage the ecosystem is in. Second is education and training as I mentioned earlier it's a big gap the sales marketing business side actually is where we see a lot of entrepreneurs needing more mentorship and expertise now this year we host a workshop before each event where we train them up we bring in local mentors successful entrepreneurs and have them work with the startups on the pitches of course you know the audience will differ um, the pitch event itself is a public audience um, it's investors and so we really tell the startups this is a set. you're selling at this competition. So think of it as not just winning a prize, but also increasing your ability to, to sell your product or service. The pitch competition is the last pillar, so itself is in front of a international and local jury panel. We bring in investors, angel investors and VCs alike, also successful entrepreneurs who have really been through the journey so they can provide good expertise, and then also corporate. Because increasingly, we're seeing corporates have interest in supporting the startups and also have the capital and expertise to do so. And then at the end, the jury selects the winner, which it's an all-expenses-paid trip to the Sea summit in Lausanne, Switzerland, in March 2016. As well as up to 70k in in-kind prizes and then, of course, access to the global family of the top 3,000 entrepreneurs in the emerging markets.
0: So how do you select the winner in each city and what happens after that?
1: So the criteria that we look at, broadly speaking, investability and scalability. So the reason why we focus on C-Stage is because that's where we can start to see the traction. In the best case, you know, is it's revenue generating startups already. And yet we also focus a lot on the team because at the C-Stage, of course, much can change. And then we look at scalability because... Again, we are a global network, and the real USP of SeatStars is that we have connections in 58 emerging markets as well as in Europe. So we can really help a startup from Singapore, from Bangkok, from Lagos, from Mexico City, scale within their region, because we have a regional presence, and then to the other emerging markets where you actually have similar customer demographics, and then also to Europe. That's the reason for the, the value that we're and the USP that we have.
0: So which cities in Asia that Sea Stars have already been penetrated into? I, I think you went to 15 yes. countries and how much <laughs> time do you spend in each city?
1: Always wish we could spend more. So in total we spend on average 7 to 10 days. We have very aggressive travel itinerary as it's six months. We start in June and we go until December. And so the cities are Sydney, Shanghai, Bangkok, Jakarta, Bangalore, Hong Kong, Taipei, Seoul, Hanoi, Yangon, Manila, Dhaka, Kuala Lumpur, and then Singapore.
0: Wow, so many countries. Mm -hmm. Here lies the interesting question, right? Because you have all these winners from each city, but they all represent very different kind of markets. Mm -hmm. For example, Singapore is much more developed market, similar with maybe Hong Kong, Sydney. And then you have something that is very emerging market like maybe Manila, Mm -hmm. Jakarta, how do you help to scale these winners because they may be solving different kind of problems for different kinds of population or mm-hmm. audience?
1: That's a really good question. So I think the first thing to understand and our key learning from the experience is exactly what you said. What is the segmentation of these fifteen countries? What I've discovered is there's basically three categories I would put the, the countries in. And we'll start there and then and talk about the start of the second. So in emerging markets, I would put Bangalore, so India, Jakarta, Indonesia, Bangkok, Thailand, Manila, Philippines, Hanoi, Vietnam, and then KL, Malaysia. And I call these emerging hype markets. And hype meaning at a high level, they already have mostly in place what key characteristics an ecosystem needs to have strong investor confidence. And those factors are, one, very appealing market size. So you see India's, you know, plus one billion population. Indonesia, 260 million. Philippines, 100 million. There's a lot of opportunity here. The second is connectivity and core technology infrastructure, right? So as I said, we focus on tech startups. So really looking for places where 3G and smartphone penetration is already quite advanced. And then third is this sign of leapfrogging, areas where the population, you know, is mobile first. There's a lot of digital savviness because startups can have very talented people and ideas. But if the consumer segment is not ready, it's not going to take off. right? And then the fourth is talent. So India, Thailand, the Philippines, Indonesia, Vietnam. Here we all saw quite raw talent in terms of technical and design. They have a very predominantly young population who have these skills. So of course, they can, they can only get better. So with those signs in the emerging hype markets, what we're finding is a pipeline. So the number one challenge in these areas is like, they just can't find quality startups to invest in, right? But here, we're starting to see it. Word hype, I use it because there's also this interesting tension of whether it's real. The investors, they started to see this success in India, for example, with Flipkart. Now you have Gojek in Indonesia, and they're wondering, am I going to miss out? if I don't start putting my capital on these emerging markets. However, there's still a lot of work to be done to sustain, build up stability of these ecosystems, right? So there's legal infrastructure, transparency, investor protection not necessarily all there. So what is really exciting is to start to see the startups in these markets be successful and then those founders can get back to the ecosystem and build up the investor confidence.
0: So you survive 15 countries. Any interesting startups you have found? Maybe we can talk about three three to four of them.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So the ones that I think are most interesting for C Stars and for myself personally given my background as well is the ones really solving real problems for society. But they don't identify as social enterprises. They really see that they can be profit generating, but they're tackling a very local and very real problem that magically and understandably so actually has a similar dynamic in So health is one sector where we saw about 20% of the startups this year. Pakistan, for example, our winner is called Doctors. It's a healthcare marketplace that connects female doctors to millions of underserved patients in real time. And the problem isn't just the health service delivery, it's also the underemployment of female doctors due to social cultural barriers. There's actually a really good gender issue that they're tackling here too. In education, our winner from Myanmar was very outstanding, so SAM's School Administration Management System. They are the forefront of digitizing the education system in Myanmar, as you know, just opened up about three, four years ago. Almost zero technology infrastructure before then, and now they're coming in and saying we can help teachers focus on their job, which is educating the students by removing the administration finance tasks from their day to day and, and making that. A digital experience, right? And the good thing is, they already active in three thousand schools. They have the support of the government and the entrepreneur who pitches, thirteen years old. Oh, amazing! Wow. Yeah, prodigy. And then in energy, QFE Quantum Force Engineering from Hong Kong, they're building a lithium ion energy storage system to substitute for diesel generators in the emerging markets, which are large and polluting and expensive. And they actually brought their their generator into the room. It powered the the whole event. Very, very tough thing to, to do. I mean this is something like your your Teslas of the world and SpaceX are trying to invest in and they're doing it, you know, as a small team, absolutely motivated by the larger problem they're trying to solve, right? And then agriculture, I have to mention eFishery, which was our winner in Indonesia last year. And they just raised money this year. And they are smart farming, smart fish feeding system. And they're tackling maybe the less sexy part of Indonesia, which is the rural markets, right? Everyone's focused on the urban areas, but he's really built up a strong distribution network, traveled to all the islands, Indonesia. So very inspiring entrepreneur and very motivating
0: Interesting that you brought up this when I was interviewing Rama from Daily Social. He talked about e-fishery. It's <laughs> one of the unmentioned companies that are solving real-world problems on that. Given that you travel 15 cities, you have seen trends and observations in Asia. Across these cities, what, what I want to do is maybe we can go category by category. The question is, what are the interesting observations you have seen in Asia in the following areas? I think the first one to start off with is the startup ecosystems within the different cities in the emerging markets to the developed markets. I mean, emerging would be something like a Karachi, a Bangalore, Yangon, Jakarta, Bangkok, and Manila. And then you have some very developed markets like Singapore, Hong Kong, Tokyo, Seoul, right? They all have very, very different character. How do you see these different startup ecosystems behave?
1: So I'll add one more segmentation, and that's what I call Frontier. Frontier is Karachi, Yangon, Dhaka. And I call them Frontier because on a macroeconomic level, these are still low-income countries. They're on the path to being middle-income, but basically what that means in real life is basic infrastructure is still largely missing. Health, sanitation, transportation, legal. And as a result, they're really seen as high-risk investment from an international perspective, right? As a result, you have very few international players, organizations coming in at the seat stage for investment or education. It's a huge gap. With Seat Stars, what we aim to do here is give these entrepreneurs, as they all come with us to Switzerland, the chance to stand up on the stage and say, no, this is a different story to Pakistan, to Myanmar, to Bangladesh. And yes, they are not necessarily the most attractive cities to visit but that being said the talent opportunity is at a stage where an injection of funding or resources could really move the needle so that's exciting for us because you can see how much impact you can have by focusing on a market like that in the emerging areas i would say bangalore jakarta bangkok Manila, Hanoi, and Kuala Lumpur. I think here, we are seeing the trend of international and regional investors and accelerators coming into these markets because there is, as as I mentioned earlier, the market size, the infrastructure is there, there's huge leapfrogging happening, and then the talent. And then the developed markets, which I call Singapore, Hong Kong, Seoul, Taipei. So I wrote a piece on this for Asian tigers. And from a macro level, I think it's actually really interesting to look at the history of these countries. They became very high growth, developed economies after World War II. And they all started a very low place after the war, right? And the governments, they created the export economies. And they had really focused on debt-free investments so that they can build up the post-war reconstruction. And now it's a different era. It's the information technology era that you kind to have to invest in something differently, right? It's no longer just about building up the infrastructure and manufacturing plants and building up the export distribution, but rather human capital. So the human capital, however, and what we observe is that it's the education systems in these countries are still quite conservative. The preference in, in both the social and cultural level is still to go for a traditional career, at a big, you know, technology company like a uh, Samsung, for example, Microsoft, Facebook, Google, but the risk appetite for joining a startup is actually lower. I think because there is a co- a comfortable life you can have if you take the corporate road. So in countries where the emerging and frontier ones I mentioned, being an entrepreneur is very appealing because. There's a lot less opportunity for very talented people. So it's interesting to see how the talent distribution affects you know, the startup ecosystem. The interesting thing, also, about the, the markets is in terms of the quality of the startups. I don't think it follows the same segmentation. It's not like the the highest quality startups are in the most developed countries. Instead, I think you have to think about kind of the core components of, of what you need for a successful ecosystem. And in Singapore and Hong Kong and Taipei, the more you can encourage people to take the risk, have the hunger to solve those real difficult problems, then you can also see the potential in, in those markets.
0: I mean one of the things about startup ecosystem is about the human side of things when you, you talk about all the quality of talent but i think what about the organization of the talent like for example if i'm in the bay area everyone would be helpful and i can talk to from point a then you go to point b point c and then you know from different people and then eventually you find what you really need does that actually happen in different cities or are some cities they may have certain central aggregation points like for example in singapore we have block 71 and then you've Go to China, in Beijing, you will be something like a to Do you see that as a part of the startup ecosystem as well?
1: It's a very good point because collaboration in an ecosystem is something you can manufacture to a point. So having an innovation hub, having a centralized place for all the startups to be, which is in Singapore, we see this in Malaysia. We see ideas for this in, in other markets as well. But it's not everything because you also have to change people's culture. And... You have this, There's this theory about uh, collision points, that if you create the space and opportunity enough events, putting everyone in a co-working space, for example, that the propensity for collision will increase, which is true. However, even if you collide with someone else who could be helpful to you, if both people aren't willing to help and understand that they helped, the immediate ROI might not be evident until you know maybe it's a year from now maybe two years from now that kind of open giving culture i think is still something to work on in asia so i'm from san francisco and i was very much immersed in that culture where you're just giving 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 and and people are not suspicious that they will steal their idea and they're not necessarily expecting an immediate return favor and i think that has contributed a lot to the culture uh, of Silicon Valley, and you can't just copy and paste that. You can copy and paste maybe the, the tech campus, but that's something at Stars, we take a very collaborative approach, and the pitch event is really how we try to do that. We bring all the stakeholders together. We spend a lot of time inviting people and being very deliberate about how we can bring, bring the stakeholders together. In terms of the culture itself, though, it's important to understand the reason why it's still a barrier. I think the Asian culture, you're, bit more private, if a family oriented, family network still very dominant. Community is another word that I use a lot, and Seastore uses a lot, and it's something that increasingly you see community leaders come up and infuse that into the ecosystem, but it really takes, and as you mentioned, it's, it's really the people who come and bring that. And no beautiful space is, as well constructed as it is can really make that happen without the people also recognizing it.
0: How about co-working spaces, for example? I mean, you wrote something about mm-hmm. Bangkok.
1: Yes. Co-working is, is a, a trend that we picked up on in the whole region. I think Bangkok, we had 40 spaces open up in the last year. And the reason that I wrote about it is because it's clearly a, a huge trend. But in terms of the design of it, I think there can still be more done to make an enabler for a startup ecosystem. It's still very much for digital nomads and freelancers and for expats. And the concept of co-working is still quite new, I think in Asia, and and the reasons for entrepreneurs not necessarily seeing them as the place to go are really important to pay attention to, right? Like the the thought that someone will steal the idea, the affordability used to working by themselves, as much as you can think about the programming, the location, the price point. Those are all very, very important for the people who will come into the space. And in terms of the geography of it, I think that's also fascinating because these Asian cities where we focus on like huge cities, they're very wide in their radius and square coverage, right? So if most people, local people in the city actually live outside of the city because it's cheaper to live there, they have maybe two, three hour commute. Look at the traveling in Jakarta is going to be, you know four hours getting back so even if you have your event in the co-working space the chances that you're going to attract people from those outside urban areas is low because they physically can't get there right so that's where i think it's very exciting to think about how you can build satellite spaces pop-up spaces in those peripheral areas to really make entrepreneurship and tech entrepreneurship accessible to local people and that goes back to the seatstar's mission of making entrepreneurship an option for everyone about solving the, the, I guess, inequality in itself and being part of the entrepreneurship ecosystem.
0: How about cultural attitudes? I mean, are there any fundamental differences in investor attitudes, founder attitudes, and even employees in the startup space?
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Biggest gap there is really to do with education on both sides. So I'll give you an example. Investor in Europe, they may or may not have been to these markets before. They probably take a traditional investment perspective, which means they have expect a lot of upfront understanding of exactly where their investment will go, what the return is going to look like, and we want five, 10, 30 year projections. I had a startup tell me that the potential investor asked for 30 years. A tech startup projecting out 30 years, it's, it's really <laughs> infeasible, right, at a seed stage. A lot of education we do on the Europe side is to tell the story of the emerging markets by A, outlining for them that the time horizon is much longer for return. B, helping them understand the risk better. And then C, informing them of how investing in a tech company is different from an infrastructure project or real estate, places where their money has traditionally gone. From the entrepreneur side, I think there's a lot, of course, there's a million blogs on it, like what does an investor look for? From my perspective, it's one equation. And that's your unit economics your cost per acquisition and your customer lifetime value if you can understand how much it costs you to get to the customer and how much return they can bring you that is the fundamental for how an investor can actually evaluate how much return they're going to get if it's 10x 20x 30x because from that one unit you can see oh if, if it costs me ten dollars to acquire and i make a hundred dollars off of them, you can already project out the return that's a hundred times better than any financial projection and spreadsheets and we've gotten the spreadsheets and we just say take that out of the pitch no one really believes it anyway at this point but the understanding of that concept is still very nascent uh, even in developed ecosystems so there's education on that side
0: as mm. well. How about founders, employees?
1: So founders and employees in terms of culture, I think that the biggest gaps come in terms of the type of founder you're working with. So you have experienced founders who've worked in corporate, and then you have your young, just out of university or even in university founders. The challenge is if you work with, say, an experienced founder with a corporate background, they may lead with that management style that can be very difficult for trying to hire talent that is used to you know very free flowing startup atmosphere so there needs to be a bridge there for the young entrepreneurs and founders they when they scale they probably need to bring in more experienced talent as well right so there is a understanding of how a younger founder can speak the corporate level can have the language and experience that I mean, they really don't have. They still need to make that gap, especially if you say you're a B2B company, you need to be speaking on the corporate level. So there's a lot of reaching out on both sides that has to be done.
0: I hear this comment once from one of these uh, tech startup founders that if you were to compare the founders from Silicon Valley against any country in the world, the quality is the same. They sell select like themselves. But once you get to the next layer where you look for the corporates, the managers or people who are like, for example, in Silicon Valley, you start from maybe Apple, work for Google and work for Twitter, work for Pinterest, you know, they, these cyclable executives that goes around to help to build that ecosystem. Do, do you see that level is still very nascent in the whole of Asia?
1: Yes, it's very nascent because many ecosystems still missing the big success story. So in India, Bangalore, I think that's a unique case because Infosys, which is the big outsourcing company started there, really actually made Bangalore the startup hub because you have all the technical talent there and really made technology something that people gravitated towards. And now employees from that company have gone off to start their own companies. And then you have Flipkart, which was founders from the Valley who came back and then Through their success, they've been able to have people leave and start their own company. So you start to see that circuitous cycle happen. But in places like Myanmar, in the Philippines, there's no real big success. So you're missing that. And then people are very hungry for those mentors. But the challenge is then if you don't have people with that success story, you still need expertise. You still need people who maybe come from just a corporate business background to come in and teach them on sales and marketing and, and go to market.
0: I thought you wrote something pretty interesting about design for access. I think you mentioned it just mm-hmm. now about something a place like Jakarta mm-hmm. where they actually have transportation problems mm-hmm. and you can't actually have that. What what's the concept for design for access means in these different ecosystems?
1: An ecosystem building is a really fun and interesting kind of work to be in. Because a lot of it is just grassroots, people really passionate about it, coming together, they have an event, and then it starts to become a community, right? So the actual design of it isn't necessarily how it all got started. But I think that's also the exciting opportunity for emerging ecosystems that are at the very beginning. What we've found is in the Valley, you know, the conversation is around how women and minorities are not part of the startup ecosystem to to the point that a white male is, right? and this is you know in a very developed ecosystem now they're realizing the gap now there are all these measures to try and tackle it so in asia it's very exciting because you can actually start to say now we're going to start the ecosystem with you know groups for women founders or we're going to have events in the rural areas where we can actually bring in the talent there instead of just waiting for the trickle down effects right because i think what has the world has learned from at least what's happening in the valley is that it doesn't necessarily trickle down. You actually have to be very deliberate about the measures you take to bring in and make entrepreneurship something that's inclusive of, of all demographics. I know this can sound very idealistic. It's very hard to execute because there's social cultural dynamics in every country that are different. But I am I think what SeedStars were hopeful about is the more we can really take that approach and show that it works, the more that it can be appealing and an example that uh, hopefully ecosystems want to learn from.
0: So I have my penultimate question. Mm-hmm. How does technology actually allow you to move from city to city? I mean, you have messaging apps, you have social media, you have mobile. Can you just give me a sense of which of these tools you use a lot to go through city to city?
1: Yeah, you know, Renard, this job would not be possible without technology. 100% true. You know, in every country, it's different SIM card, first of all. First thing you do when you land is get the SIM card. The second is the messaging and the social communication, right? And that's fascinating because when I was in the Valley, I read about WeChat, read about Line, and they were just very like far off from me because no one really uses them. And then I start to notice in each country, there's a preferred channel. And uh, from my observations, Facebook Messenger by far is the most cross-cutting across all countries. If all else fails, you'll find them on Facebook, but they will find you, but in Places where, like, for example, WeChat, I think, I only used it in Taiwan, Hong Kong, China. Um, and then in Indonesia, in Thailand, in the Philippines, it's Line or WhatsApp. SMS, almost never used because uh, the data actually is, or the actual texting is very expensive.
0: Talk oh, about WhatsApp.
1: So WhatsApp, I think I use the most just for international comms. So our team, for example, we're in four regions in the world, actually five, yeah. And we are across all different time zones. So we actually have the entire SSW family on WhatsApp. So we found that to be a good cross-cutting one. It doesn't have all the layers that WeChat or Line has. It doesn't have the (laughs) Q-stickers. So there's some possibility there for integration. But what I think is very interesting though is uh, how much Asia itself has pioneered these social apps. In the other regions we work, this does not this trend. Like all the different customized platforms so for that we absolutely powers our job
0: okay we'll probably get you back at some point in time to tell us maybe your next 15 cities of travel again now here lies the final question how do my audience find you karen
1: <laughs> so you can find me online of course probably uh, hard to catch me in real time unless the travel days line up so i'm on twitter i handle is at kmoc 88 and then facebook so, there is a Hong Kong pop star with my name, so I'm <laughs> unfortunately not her. But uh, LinkedIn, you can find me, Medium, I write, but definitely Twitter, I'm always accessible.
0: You can find me at B. cw or at BernardLeung.com or subscribe to us at iTunes, Stitcher, acast and SoundCloud. You can leave us a rating and drop me comments from time to time. Actually, I'm actually very accessible on Twitter. In fact, I've been having chat with a lot of fans
1: out there lately. Uh, Once again, Karen, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you so much.